We're going to talk about Victorian dunces now on Sunday Extra. And before the texts start piling in from Melbourne, don't worry, this isn't about dissing anyone from what is objectively Australia's number two state, just in terms of population, nothing else. No, our next guest is the founder of a research project called The Dunces Hat, which investigates how the idea of intelligence was constructed in Victorian England. Dr Louise Creakin is a scholar of Victorian literature whose PhD was all about illiteracy. And while her work's grounded in historical and literary research, it also draws on Louise's personal experiences as a neurodivergent student with dyslexia coming up through an education system focused on literacy and reading. Dr Louise Creakin, welcome to Sunday Extra. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. It's a pleasure. Uh, Louise, the, the dunces hat these days is, well, it's still a cultural reference point to this day. It's really awful to think of it actually being used as a humiliating punishment for mm-hmm. school, school children. Why is the dunces hat interesting to you? Well, the thing is, the dunces hat has so many kind of cultural ramifications and it's within cultural memory so although I'm a Victorianist and we really think about the dunce's hat being a Victorian thing I mean the dunce's hat and being a dunce and sort of that went right through to sort of the early 20th century and even some of your listeners maybe might remember the concept of the dunce's hat like that we we could even have people who experienced the dunce's hat listening so Mm. it's it's within living memory too Um, but for me the thing that really struck me is the first time I learned about the dunces hat, I was in a primary school classroom and we were doing like a sort of simulated Victorian schoolroom thing where we had sort of slates and we're writing out things and the teacher was extra mean and all this (laughs) stuff. And I remember learning about the dunces hat and I had this absolutely kind of galling reaction because I knew from that sort of that was a period of the sort of back of the classroom, undiagnosed dyslexia and various other <laughs> related issues, ADHD, etc. Um, that were 1896 and not 1996, that that would have been me. Mm. So I just had this, I had, that's kind of been the impetus for this project is that kind of idea that although we're thinking about legacy and what was happening in the Victorian period, there's such echoes now and how we think about education, how we think about intelligence, how we think about kind of more or less everything, how, how we how we structure our ideas of what's valuable in school, what's valuable to society. I must say, when I was reading about your research into what you've described as the Victorian obsession with quantifying the progress of the educational reform agenda, I found myself thinking, well, that obsession is certainly not uh, limited to Victorian England. Could you give us an overview of some of the history that you're talking about there? We really think about, so so obviously, you know, what was happening in Victorian England definitely had its echoes and what was happening in Australia. It's not my, it's not my expertise, but it, it's really kind of foundational thoughts that were coming from this period. Um, and basically what, what happened was the Education Act of 1870 is kind of the big act that people think of as like that kind of mark for how education reform started. Really compulsory education in in the UK, well, in in England anyway, didn't really come into the 1880s. But we see this in legislation, but in reality, people, you know, the vast majority of children were going to school um, sort of around the 1860s, 1870s. Those acts kind of just mopped up everyone that was kind of left over. The thing with these acts was 
is that they weren't only instituting, you know, you should you should become literate for your own good, you should get educated. These acts were more concerned with how to fund those schools. So in we have some this thing called the 1862 Revised Code, and it was kind of nicknamed the Payments by Results Code, mm. which might be kind of familiar to how school funding kind of even still works yes, today. Yeah, so basically what happened was is they had a sort of large um, number of school inspectorates which would go around and test the levels of reading, writing and arithmetic in the classroom and the schools would be funded according to the standard that the students reached. And so it became demonised to not be reaching these standards. They were very much set in stone. They were set in the legislation. So like standard six would be the ability to read from Shakespeare. Mm. So what happened was it wasn't like a general test of skill. It was a set test of skill. So teachers would teach for the exam. The actual standard of education was just parroting back information, parroting back skills. It's it's kind of a false equivalency. It's a false standard. Um, so, Absolutely. Yeah, again. And, and again, the, the, the echoes are so clear to the way education uh, operates these days. Uh, Louise, you also uh, cover the very words, literate and illiterate, sort of changed meaning mm-hmm. and evolved. Um, could you tell yeah, us about yeah. that? In terms of illiteracy, we know that it has a Latin root. So illiteratus would be someone who you know, wasn't skilled, wasn't, didn't have a classical education. So even until the sort of Victorian period, if someone was illiterate, it wasn't that they couldn't read or write. It was that they didn't possess a classical education. And I think the vast majority of people are not privately educated. So they don't have this classical education in Latin and Greek. So it could even extend to someone being uncouth or ill-mannered, that someone would be illiterate is this kind of very elitist idea. This starts to shift as we have the educational reforms coming in. So the actual first usage of the word literacy as a noun, it was in the 1880s. So after these reforms, so you have this vast history of illiteracy and being an illiterate in terms of being not properly educated, But it's only when we have these educational reforms that we get this notion of literacy. And that's where our modern definition of illiteracy really starts to come in. Um, So again, it links into this idea about demonising those that are behind the curve. Indeed. Uh, On Sunday Extra, we're speaking with Dr Louise Creakin, who's lecturer in Literary Medical Humanities at the University of Durham and founder of the Dunces Hat Project. Louise What's sitting behind a lot of this demonisation is really just an education system that doesn't know how to engage with people who might learn in different ways. Is that right? Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, so this really interested me because I'm dyslexic and, I took, and I'm a Victorianist as we've gathered as my research area, but it took me actually a really long time, quite an embarrassingly long, long time to realise that dyslexia or, you know, a, sort of the early diagnosis of dyslexia was actually a Victorian thing. Mm. It was first diagnosed in 1896. We can't say it's properly dyslexia, but it was a condition that seems to be what we would consider dyslexia. Um, so they called it congenital word blindness. Mm. And this started appearing in 1896. And... The reason why I'm mentioning this kind of diagnosis at this point is because 
what happened was when you're getting numbers of children going to schools and starting to learn that perhaps would have not been um, educated in previous generations, suddenly some of the, um, this is not exactly a decent term now, but some of what we're calling the idiot asylum, so mm. they were called the asylums for idiots, there were influxes, especially at Earlswood, which is one of the largest and first idiot asylums in the UK. Um, there were there was a huge influx of um, admissions of children thought to be idiots. And the reason for this was sort of they were going to school and unable to learn to read. And so it was presumed that there was something vastly wrong. So what we have is this real turn where capitalism has developed to, you know, where labour becomes much more intellectual and capitalism is responding to that, is we've got a new disability emerging because the definition of what makes a worker mm. is changing. It all feeds in as well to standards that we still work with today. We still think that examinations are, are a good thing because I'm trying to now in my 30s, trying to work out what actually would be the most enabling way for me to work with my learning difficulties. Yes. And How hard was it for you and the and your dyslexia to develop a, a, not just an interest but clearly a love of um, Victorian <laughs> literature to and, and which is clearly so based in the very thing that dyslexia makes more complicated for you? Um, well, I mean, the short answer to that is that I am stubborn <laughs> and I had a, a massive chip on my shoulder um, for struggling in, in the classroom. And I think that one of the things that I did was I just saw which the, which were the longest books on the bookshelf and they were Victorian. Mm. And I, if people think I can't read it, I'm, I'm going to read it and I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a, a case of sort of being insanely stubborn. And I suppose, uh, Louise, you're now, as well as studying this stuff, you're also teaching. Um, how do you go with trying to teach uh, literature in ways that might be more accessible or work better for um, people whose brains work differently? I mean, I really hope that my classroom's as uh, diverse as I, think, as I think it is. I think I really try to sort of change formats and stuff. Mm. Do you do written exams? Oh, God, no. <laughs> no, um, it, it depends on the the modules. So um, at the university, there are modules that will be written exams mm. because that's how it has to be. Um, but we, we've just... In September, I'm due to be teaching the, the UK's first course, uh, Neurodiversity in the Humanities, and we're really excited because that's going to be student-devised assessment. So they um, they work out what medium would be best for thinking through things and um, work in that medium. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a bit of an attention seeker, I'm afraid, so... Um, <laughs> Um, something that I am really passionate about has is, is been this constant side project is musical theatre. And I've done a couple of projects where we've put on uh, sort of partnering with um, just amateur companies, but, you know, um, in Glasgow where we've, put, where we've put on shows and had a research project attached to it. So we, there's this, this amazing show that was um, written in the 1980s and it's The Mystery of Edwin Drood. And it is an absolutely ridiculous musical and we staged it in Glasgow. So... The reason why it's so ridiculous is you might 
not be aware, or you might be aware that Mystery of Edwin Drood is Dickens's unfinished novel. So he died before he could complete it. No one knows how it ends. Um, th- there are so many theories, but no one knows. But what this musical does is it, it adapts the Mystery of Edwin Drood but it's a music hall putting it on sort of 20 years later. So it's very tongue-in-cheek. It is Edwin Drood himself is played by a male impersonator um, and they frequently come out of character and there's a lot of politics going on. So it's a show within a show structure. But you have this amazing moment where you're literally singing at the front of the stage, you know, the truth is this, it's going to be this big reveal. And then the band stops playing. <laughs> because Dickens died. (laughs) What what do we do? Um, So the musical has this amazing moment where you have this realisation and they're like, right, we're going to put it to audience vote. We're going to do it this way. So the audience then votes for the detective, the murderer, and the two lovers at the end, because obviously there needs to be lovers at the end, right? Because it's it's (laughs) musical. It has to have a happy ending. Um, So we worked out that there's something like 458 possible endings that could happen. (laughs) Well, Louise, as well as hearing about how your uh, new methods of teaching and student assessment go, we'll look forward to the Australian premiere of the All Singing, All Dancing (laughs) musical version of The Mystery of Edwin Drood, hopefully coming to an Australian stage very soon. It's been great speaking with you on Sunday Extra. Thanks very much and all the best. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. That was Dr Louise Cregan from Durham University, uh, one of the UK researchers named in the BBC's New Generation Thinkers. Earlier this year, a title she told me she tries to deploy at home with her partner uh, to very little recognition, I was told. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.